Please turn with me in your Bible to Matthew chapter 12. We are making our way through the Gospel of Matthew. We are in the 12th chapter. Last Sunday, we dealt with the issue of the unforgivable sin, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, and today's passage certainly is not entirely disconnected from what we talked about last Sunday. It certainly flows right from what we saw last week. I'll read the passage for us, and then we'll pray. Matthew chapter 12, starting in verse 33, going through verse 37. Again, this is the word of the Lord, Matthew chapter 12, verse 33. Either make the tree good, and its fruit good, or make the tree bad, and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak, for by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned." Let's bow our heads together. Heavenly Father, I do ask sincerely that by Your Spirit, You would come and You would illuminate the truth of what we just read. I pray, God, that You would take it from being just words on a page. You would open the eyes of our hearts, the eyes of our minds to perceive the truth of what Jesus is saying here and the weight and the seriousness of it that it would make every single one of us in this room sober-minded, that we would be serious, that we would feel the gravity of this, and that we would examine our own hearts in light of what is said here. I also pray, Lord, that we would not misunderstand what Jesus is saying here. I think this could be taken in a a very uh, incorrect direction by someone who did not understand what all of Scripture teaches on these issues. So I pray, God, that You would not confuse us in these next moments, that You would bring clarity that even just the simple main ideas of this text would be clear to all of us, and I pray that You would uh, help us to be dependent on You for our salvation and for our right standing before You. I pray, God, that we would be challenged and corrected in all the ways that we need to be, and I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, for those who were here last Sunday, we, we came right off the heels of the unforgivable sin, which is where the Pharisees saw Jesus, you remember this, He performed... Uh, miracles. He was casting out demons right in front of them, and they had indisputable evidence that Jesus is who He said He was, that Jesus is doing exactly what He said He was going to do and what He was doing. There was no way to avoid it. Everyone could see it with their own eyes. There was no avoiding it. It was staring them in the face. The ministry of the Spirit through the person of Jesus Christ was right there to be seen by all, could not be denied. And yet, because of their absolute hatred of Jesus and jealousy of Jesus, They said that Jesus was performing these miracles by the works of Beelzebub or by Satan himself. And Jesus says, essentially, you are in danger of committing blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, which will never be forgiven in this age or the age to come. It's an unforgivable sin. It will never be forgiven. Why? Because with unquestionable evidence staring them in their face about the ministry of Jesus, they were going to spit right in Jesus' face and attribute it knowingly, willfully, uh, deliberately. And in a hardened state that was not going to repent, they were going to attribute the ministry of Jesus to to the works of Satan. 
And so Jesus says, you are in danger of committing a sin that will never be forgiven. And then Jesus comes right off the heels of that into His statements today about how we use our words. Do you see the connection between blasphemy, which is a speech sin, to blaspheme is something you do with your mouth, with your words, and you see here Jesus says blasphemy against the Spirit is an unforgivable sin, and He goes right into our words really matter because our words show the kind of person we are, it shows what we believe, it shows what we're devoted to, and at the final judgment, by your words you will be justified or by your words you will be condemned. So I want to zero in here, we're going to go out of order today, I want to zero in on the last couple verses and I'll give you the the three points for the sermon uh, now. I've titled the sermon, By Your Words, You'll Be Justified or Condemned, and there are three points. Number one, is justification by faith or by words? Is justification by faith or by words? Point number two, what do our words reveal about our hearts? What do our words reveal about our hearts? And point number three, how can we change? How can we change? Well, let's begin here with, this, with the last two verses. Because I think if we go wrong with the last two verses, we're going to go wrong with the whole passage. In fact, we'll go wrong with the whole of Christianity if we misunderstand these last two verses. So let's, let's spend some time. For some of you, this is going to be very basic, but for some, it may be new. And so I want to try to be as careful as I can. And so even if this is familiar to you, I think it is worth thinking about carefully. Let me, let me read again for us verses 36 and 37. I tell you, on the day of judgment... People will, be, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Now, for those who are familiar with uh, the gospel of Christianity, I assume that's most of us in the room, can you see how this text could be taken in a very wrong direction? By your words you will be justified, by your words you will be condemned. We don't want to misunderstand or misrepresent what Jesus is saying, Neither do we want to water down and distort what Jesus is saying. Do you see this is a tricky thing? So let's think through this very carefully. For instance, in the Apostle Paul and also in other parts of the Gospels, like Luke, it's very clear what justification is and how it works. So let me just take a moment here to, to lay out a very basic Christian teaching. This is Christianity 101. Here's the basic understanding of what the Gospel is and what the Bible teaches. Here's what it teaches. God did not create us fallen and sinful. He created us sinless and perfect in the Garden of Eden. Yet Adam and Eve chose to rebel and follow the serpent and plunge the human race into sin. We believe in original sin, which is the idea that we are all born dead in sin because of Adam, our representative, who failed in in our place, and we are condemned in Adam. We are not sinners uh, because we sin. We sin because we are sinners by nature. That's, that explains why when you look at the human race, it is a complete universal failing except for one person, Jesus. Every single person you meet is fallen and flawed and lies and cheats and steals and uses God's name in vain and on and on and on. It's a 100% failure. When you look at all of humanity, that's because of how we have fallen in Adam. Now, here is the crucial point. God loves sinners and God made a way for sinners to be right with Him. And every other religion, I, I, I don't think I'm exaggerating when I say this, every other religion and worldview, when you boil it down, however they present eternity and salvation and God, however you do it, when you boil it down, it comes down to 
Your performance at the end of the day determines whether or not you're right with God and you're accepted into God's presence or you are condemned and cast out. That's how it all comes down in all religions. But in Christianity, we believe in salvation by grace. And what that means is because of Christ's perfect sinless life, He obeyed all of God's commands, His substitutionary death where He died in the place of sinners and He was buried and rose and ascended to the right hand of the Father. Because of that truth, if we will simply turn from our sin and trust in the finished work of Jesus, we are justified, that is, we are declared righteous before a holy God, we are declared in the right before a holy God simply by faith and by faith alone. This is the Protestant doctrine of sola fide, justification by faith only. And we believe that it is only by faith in Christ that we are justified. But let me explain this a little more carefully because we don't want to go wrong on any of these essential matters. It is not, listen carefully, it is not our faith, our believing in Jesus, that is our righteousness. Our faith is the instrument that God has chosen that unites us to Jesus who is our righteousness. So faith itself doesn't earn or merit a right standing with God. Faith simply says, I've got nothing to offer. I've got empty hands. I come naked looking for dress. I come hungry looking for food. I've got nothing to offer or merit before God. I come empty handed and I cling to Jesus alone. And when you cling by faith to Jesus, you are united to Jesus. And Jesus then is your righteousness. God counts Christ's righteousness as your righteousness. God credits your, uh, you with living Christ's perfect life. So this is just amazing. I, I know we know this. This is just amazing. So you say, I've, I've told lies in my life. Everyone in this room has told lies. And if you say you haven't, that would be another lie is what that would be. Okay, so yes, you have. You have misrepresented the truth intentionally and deliberately to make yourself look better. Every single person in this room has done that. Who knows how many times across this room lies have, have happened. We've been guilty of that. And I'm not making light of that. But here's the thing. If you are united to Christ, his, your lies, your failures, your sin is no longer yours. It is imputed or credited or counted to another, the sinless one, who took your sin and he became sin by imputation on the cross and God now turns around and he credits you with a life of perfect honesty and integrity and humility and God-honoring life. That is credited to you. Now, your status is justified. It is right before God. Now, that is so clear in books like Romans and Galatians and even in Luke 18 where Jesus talks about the tax collector and the Pharisee, he beats his breast, God be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus says he goes home justified rather than the man who thinks he's all that, the the Pharisee. That man has done nothing good. He just pleads for grace. And Jesus says he, by simple trust in God, he goes home justified. And then you have a text like this where Jesus says, on the last day at the final judgment, you will be justified by your words or condemned by your words. And you want to scratch your head and say, well, which is it? Am I justified by faith or am I justified by my words? Let me just give a quick illustration here. I've heard it said this, Christianity uh, is both a transaction and a transformation. At the moment we trust Christ, does a transaction take place legally before God? Our sin is credited to Christ's account. His righteousness is credited to ours. We stand perfectly righteous before God by faith alone. 
But we are not antinomians. That's a fancy word. It means to be against the law or to be lawless before God. Anti-namos, to be against God's law. We are not antinomians. We do not believe that we are saved by grace and so we can live however we want. That is not what Scripture teaches. It's not what Jesus, Paul, Peter, James, or anyone else in Scripture teaches. We believe that although we are entirely saved by grace, it is not any merit or work, works righteousness of our own that we are united to Christ, but we believe that if we are truly united to Christ, a transformation takes place at the core of our being. It's called a heart transplant. Our old heart is taken out, a new heart is given, right? Ezekiel says the heart of stone that has no feeling toward God is removed, and a heart of flesh that can feel and respond and be malleable is put in. Paul will speak of us being a new creation in Christ Jesus. Here's what that means. Although we are justified by faith alone, faith never remains alone but produces good works and a transformation of life. That's what we believe is clearly taught. So Jesus is saying here not that we save ourselves by saying the right words. That's not what Jesus is teaching. That's not what anyone in in Scripture is teaching. Jesus is saying, if we truly know Jesus, is there going to be a dramatic change in the way we speak, in the way we act, in the way we live? Now listen, we all know no Christian this side of heaven is perfect and sinless, but we do believe that there is a fundamental shift in our affections, our desires, our loves, our longings, and what we are all about in life. And if you, if you step back and look, we would never say we've arrived. Paul says, I don't yet myself consider myself perfect, but I press on ahead to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. I'm, I'm not there yet. I'm not all the way to perfection and resurrection, but I'm pressing ahead is what Paul said, forgetting what's behind and pressing toward what's ahead. We would say, we're not there yet. But honestly, amid all of our faults and failings that we still struggle with, can we say this? We hate our sin in a way in which we once did not. Can can you say that about yourself? Can you look back? Maybe you were converted at at five or six and you just don't remember as well, and I understand that. That's that's a number of you in this room who were converted young. But if you were converted a little bit older, if you remember your pre-converted life, and I certainly remember mine, I did not have a holy hatred of my sin. I did not care if my life dishonored the Lord. That's not what I was about. I was wanting to maybe be self-righteous or I wanted to do this or that. It was not about the Lord at the center of my life. My affections for God and for His Word were essentially zero. And I can remember when I was 16, by God's grace, for the first time in my life, a couple things started to happen. I suddenly, and again, far from perfect on this, but I suddenly remember deliberately wanting to have an impact on other people to help them know and love Jesus better. That was a real desire that I felt within me that the Spirit was working in my life that was new to me at 16. And number two, for the first time in my life, I had a hunger for the Bible. Now, we all know that there are days where we do not have the longing to read God's Word as we ought. Even the best of us can admit, right? There are days where there's some willpower probably involved in opening up our Bible. But can we also see a difference in our love for God's Word from before we knew the Lord? I mean, maybe it was a historical book of information for you. Maybe it was about, you know, going to Awanas or Pioneer Club or some little youth group activity where you would fill out a form and you would get the gold star and you did it for that reason, whatever it might be. But deep down, was there a love for God's Word? No, not back before we knew Christ. But once we came to new Christ, there was a love for God's Word, a desire for Him that began to show itself. And guess what? That love for God is like fruit going on the branches of our lives. And Jesus says, listen, it's not, you don't have to be a genius. You walk outside, 
and you look at a tree, and if you see red delicious apples hanging on every branch of that tree, you know what you know about that tree. No matter what what anyone might say to you, you know that's an apple tree. You don't have to be a horticulturalist, you don't have to be an expert, you just look at the tree, you see the apples, you know that tree is an apple tree down to its core down to its root system. Back when it was a seed, that was an apple tree seed, even when I couldn't even tell what it was from the small size. But now you see the fruit on the branches, it's undeniable what kind of tree that is. You see oranges on another tree, you know that's an orange tree. And Jesus is saying, listen, you can tell a whole lot about all of us by the fruit that is growing on the branches of our lives. And it's not the apple on the limb that makes it an apple tree. Do you get this? This is so important. The apple on the branch does not make it an apple tree. What does it do? It proves it's an apple tree. This is not talking about earning your status. It's talking about evidencing your status. Do you see the difference here? It's not talking about forcing yourself or making yourself or meriting becoming a Christian. It's not what it is. It's saying if God has changed your life, is that change going to show on the branches of your life? Yes, Now, listen, we all agree. We're all mixed bags. We have different kinds of fruit sometimes growing. We got rotten fruit. We got all kinds of issues. But do we see over time, patiently, a growing increase of fruit in our life? You may look back, if you've been a Christian for a while, you look back over 20, 30, 40 years. Maybe it might just be 20, 30, 40 months. But you look back and you say, okay, I can see where I once was, I have not yet arrived, but I can see real change, real difference that the Spirit is working in my life. There is fruit that is increasing, and Jesus says that fruit is going to justify you, not save you. It is going to show that you are genuine. The fruit is going to accord with the kind of change that the Lord has worked in your life. If you think of, I love to think of this illustration. Let, let me quote uh, an older commentator uh, who's, who's gone to heaven, William Hendrickson. This is what he said. I thought this was a good summary. Quote, to be sure, a man is saved by grace alone through faith, apart from any works considered as if they have any earning power. Nevertheless, our works, and this includes our words, supply the needed evidence showing whether or not we are a child of God. So just to give a simple illustration of, uh, of the thief on the cross. The thief on the cross was a Christian for what, a few hours at most before the thief died? Let's just give the thief four hours. Let's just say that from about 11 o'clock that morning until just after Jesus died, he was a Christian. He was a believer for four hours. Let's just say it was four hours long. Do you know that the thief on the cross will stand before God on the final judgment and he will give an account of every careless word he spoke, and God will show that 99.99999% of his life was useless and wicked and evil, and it will all be thrown under the blood of Christ, and it will be forgiven and forgotten forever, and he will be overwhelmed by that. And the Lord God, I'm taking this illustration from someone else, the Lord God will look at the back of the filing cabinet and pull out that last piece of paper. It was the last four hours of his life. And the Lord will hold this up as public evidence to the whole watching universe and say, he confessed his guilt. Do you not fear God? We are suffering the just consequences of our deeds. That's what he said, right? Number two, he also confessed that Jesus was innocent. This man does not deserve. And he also confessed faith in Christ. Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom to a dying criminal on a cross. He said, remember me when you enter your kingdom. Is that faith? Those few statements will be held up by the Father before the whole watching world, and he will say his fruit proves his faith was genuine. Do you think those four hours of statements earned heaven for him? No. What did they do? They proved that when he was first crucified, Matthew says he was mocking Jesus. 
because both thieves were originally mocking Jesus when they were crucified at 9 a.m. By the time the lights go out at noon, this man was a different person, and he was clinging to Christ. And after four hours of being a Christian, he died. And you know what the Lord has? He has fruit on the branches of his life that proved that in just four hours, this man was actually born again and knew my son. He confessed his guilt. He rebuked the arrogant thief and he called out in faith to Christ. This man's faith was genuine. He will pass this judgment, not because he's earned anything, but because he was real and it was evident by how he was acting in those moments there. So point number two, point number two, what do our words reveal about our hearts? I want you to turn somewhere just for a moment. I don't want to take a long time on this. If you can find Judges chapter 12, earlier in your Old Testament, Joshua, Judges, Ruth. Uh, find Joshua chapter 12. I'm just going to read a clip from a, just a little snippet from a story. It has to do with the word, you may have heard of the word shibboleth. And I'm just going to show you a quick uh, excerpt here from a story. This is Judges chapter 12. And we, will, we will not go into the whole details here of what's happening. We'll just mention a brief moment here. Judges chapter 12, verse 5. And here's what we're told. It says, And the Gileadites, these are people from the tribe of Manasseh, the Gileadites captured the fords of the Jordan against the Ephraimites. They, they, they captured the part of the Jordan River where you can walk across the fords of, uh, of the Jordan against the Ephraimites. And when any of the fugitives of Ephraim said, Let me go over, the men of Gilead said to him, Are you an Ephraimite? When he said no, they said, then say the word, then say Shibboleth. And he said, Sibboleth, for he could not pronounce it right. Then they seized him and they slaughtered many that day. Now, don't worry about the historical issue right now. I just want to make a point. The Gileadites were trying to figure out who is lying and who's telling the truth. Because a lot of them want to get through. And they, they're, they're all saying, well, we are Ephraimites. They're, they're, they're trying to get through. And you know what they do? They ask a test. Pronounce this word, Shibboleth. And because of where they had been raised and the area where they were, they could not pronounce the H in Shibboleth. They pronounced it Sibboleth. And so they gave themselves away by their speech as to what, what, what group they were from. And you see, the word they spoke didn't make them one group or the other. What did it do? It proved which group they belonged to because the way they spoke, the way they pronounced words proved it. You can think of many illustrations. Uh, you know Sinclair Ferguson? has that wonderful uh, accent and he uh, talks about Scotland and all these different things. Well, uh, Sinclair Ferguson said uh, he'll get on an elevator, and uh, there'll be a stranger on the elevator, and they may ask a question, and he responds with his wonderful accent, if you've heard it, and he gets off the elevator. He says, he says this has happened more times than he can count. As he's walking off, someone will say, where are you from? And he'll say, Greenville, South Carolina. <laughs> that was where he was pastoring at the time. They look at him like, I don't think that's where you were raised. He said, listen, when I open my mouth, where I grew up is undeniably evident in the way that I talk. I can't escape it, nor do I want to escape it. When I speak, when I preach, he says, when you hear my voice, you know immediately where I am from. You can hear it in my voice because my voice doesn't make me what I am. It proves what I am. He said, another time I'm on an elevator, he said, someone gets on who's, who's perhaps been a heavy smoker or just finished smoking. When they get on the elevator, they don't, they don't show that they're smoking, but he said, I can smell it in the air. I can just smell in the air. I know that this person smokes because of the, the scent in the air. He says, listen, when it comes to knowing Jesus, there is a, he calls it, a heavenly accent to the way that we speak. There's a way that we speak. In other words, the things that we care about, the things that we want to talk about, the things we want to understand more of are the things of the Lord, we hope, we pray. If we know the Lord, that would be true. 
And there is going to be a heavenly flavor to the way that we speak that shows where we are from and what we care most about. Let me mention here a word about the heart. You can turn back to Matthew 12. Let me read a, a, a familiar proverb. My son, be attentive to my words. Incline your ear to my sayings. Let them not escape your sight. Keep them within your heart, for they are life to those who find them and healing to all their flesh. Keep your heart with all vigilance. Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life and put away from you crooked speech and put devious talk far from you. In the Bible, the heart is the control center of the human person. It's more than just your feelings. It's about what you think, what you love, what you're passionate about, what you value. Those are all the things that go on in the heart. And as the heart goes, so the person follows. And so Scripture says, keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. How we speak is going to flow out of our hearts. So let's spend time here specifically emphasizing our text right in front of us, Matthew 12, back to verse 33, and let's see what Jesus says. Either make the tree good, representing the heart, and its fruit is good, representing our actions, our words, our deeds, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. Then he says, you brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. For the good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. It's interesting that he calls them a brood of vipers. Uh, you think of Romans 3, the venom of asps is under their lips, right? In other words, the, the, the evil words that come out of the mouth come out of the mouth because they were already deeper within. They were within the heart, and they come out of the mouth. Um, James chapter 3, for every kind of beast or, and bird of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. So when we look at our lips, when we look at our words, we get a sense about what we care about. Now, you know this is true. If you meet someone and you get to know them, you primarily get to know them, partly through their actions that you see, but largely through their words. And if you spend time with someone and you talk to them and you get to know them over time, over months, uh, if, as months go by, can you tell what that person values? You absolutely can. Because what's the sign? What they want to talk about over and over and for a longer time perhaps than you want to talk about it is going to be the things that they care about. They're going to share with you the things that are most important in their lives, the things that they're most excited about, or maybe the things that they're most afraid of. The things that matter most are so often on our lips because that is the way it works. From the overflow of our heart, our mouth speaks, our, 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 our body moves, we react and we respond in accordance with what we care the most about. And so let us think about this verse. Uh, Ephesians 4.29 says this. You know this verse, many of you. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Let's just think for a second here about the positive side about how our words can impact other people. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. What this means is, 
our words have a real influence on other people. I'm not talking about magic here, like as if the words have some sort of inherent power. Some people have these strange word of faith type stuff where if you say it, it's going to happen because the words have some sort of independent authority. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is our words, just practically speaking, have a real impact on the people around us. So I'll give an illustration from a a biblical counselor uh, who, who talked about a marriage. He said, imagine a marriage that's just in trouble. He said, I I could trace it back probably years into the past in the marriage. Here's what you might see. You you might see uh, maybe a husband comes home from work that day, and maybe the wife is preparing dinner, her children, everyone's ready there. As the husband comes in, the counselor says, imagine the scenario that the wife has maybe overcooked the dinner this particular night. The the, the dinner is not very good. She's a little embarrassed. She feels she overcooked this thing, and she puts this roast down, and it's just not looking the best. The husband sits down at the table. says, imagine the husband opens his mouth out of irritability and anger and begins to speak to his wife in a demeaning way. He, he belittles her. He says, listen, uh, I'm working pretty hard here, and the least I could ask for is a decent meal when I get home, and what are you doing in front of me? And he's, he just goes off on her, maybe even in front of the children. Now, if this happens in a marriage, and you could multiply 10,000 versions of that story, if that happens in a marriage, and it happens once a week, or five times a week, or three times a day, or 10 times a day, if, that, if you multiply that, what you have is you have one marriage that is heading in a direction of death and just uh, uh, there's a lack of reconciliation, there's a lack of humility, and the whole marriage is drifting in one direction. And if that goes on for weeks, months, and years, you're talking about a very difficult situation. This is rewind the tape. Husband comes home. He, he, he's, he's, he's walking with the Lord. He comes home with graciousness. He says, honey, don't worry about it. This is no big deal. You do so much. You are working so hard for our family. I could never, you are irreplaceable. You're amazing. This is absolutely nothing. Please do not worry about it. I love you. And on he goes. Do you see that's a different kind of marriage that you're heading towards? And that's all based on what? That's based on words. Words have, like Proverbs says, the power of life and death is in the tongue. Irritable Irritable words. Words that come that are doubting God's promises, and we say them as if they're true, and we say them to the people around us. You know what those are doing? Those are tempting the people around us to not believe God's promises. We're tempting the people around us to complain with us. Don't you know how complaining works? It's like catching the cold, right? So one person starts complaining, and then the other people chime in. It's almost like a group project. Everyone just feels liberated. We're all going to talk about how terrible work is, or how terrible school is, or how terrible whatever it might be in our life. There is a way in which our words have a real and tangible impact on the people around us. So don't let any corrupting word come out of your mouths. And listen, we've all failed, but we repent when we fail. We go to the Lord for mercy and we apologize to the people that we sinned against. And then we get back up with a fresh start by God's grace. But here's the alternative. And don't hear this as a legal thing. Hear this as an invitation to something glorious. Don't let any corrupting word come out of your mouth, but only such as is, remember the next phrase, good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. When you are at work and someone does something irresponsible and it does affect you and hurt you in some real way, how you respond is of momentous importance. It will show to what degree in that moment you are grasping the gospel and the truth of, the, uh, of what Christ has done or how much we are living in the flesh. Because if you respond to someone who has wronged you with grace and true forgiveness, even joy and just a true love for that person, sin uh, is overlooked by, what is it, love overlooks uh, a multitude of sins. When you just cover it over in love and you are gracious to that person, do you think that has a life-giving effect on that individual? Absolutely it does. And yet when you respond with irritability, even, listen, 
we're, we're Western Christians. Most of us are here. We, we, we have a certain way of doing things. You can be polite and still be trying to get back at someone in a verbal way. There is a way to keep all your etiquette, all your wording. No one would ever publicly see anything there, but you know exactly which word to pick with that person at that time to give them a jab with your vocabulary, even though no one might even see it if they were watching. C.S. Lewis one time said that there are some words when spoken amongst family or friends that are more like an uppercut to the jaw than they are anything else because of when and where they are said and how they are worded. Sometimes we know how to give a subtle, passive-aggressive jab at someone, and that's our way of trying to get back at them. That is not the way of Christ. What does Christ say? What what does Paul say uh, under inspiration? He says, let our words be good for building up as fits the occasion that we might give grace to those who hear. You have the privilege of giving God's grace, of being a conduit, a channel of God's grace to everyone you live with, everyone you're around, to your children, and how often can we fail? To our children, to our spouses, to our roommates, to fellow students, to teachers, to fellow employees and coworkers, those who work under us, those who work over us. We can be a channel of God's grace in the workplace, in the home, at school, by how we speak, the tone, the inflection of voice, the word choice, how we speak. It, is, it can bless or it can corrupt those around us. Now, how do we get better at this? Point number three, how can we change so that our words better reflect the grace and the building up that is commanded of us. Well, this is so simple in our text today. I'll quote one commentator. So what's the solution for bad mouths? The answer is new hearts. You must be born again, born of the Spirit. Verse 33 in our text is a call to be converted. Look at it again, verse 33. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad, and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. I never do this. I'm going to grab a water bottle. I want to make an illustration. Okay, so real quick. I'm not going to spill it right now, but uh, I'll use this illustration. If, if you have a water bottle here, if I jostle, imagine it's, I'm not going to make a mess on the stage, but imagine this, the lid was off, and I jostle this thing, and water pours out on the floor. I've heard someone say, why did, why did water fall out on the floor? The answer is, well, because I I knocked into it, right? I I hit it. But let's re-ask the question. If I uh, jostle this, why does water come out? Because what? Water was inside of it. And Jesus' simple point is, if inside the core of your being is evil and self-centeredness and pride and I'm the center of the world and you're just something to use for my ends and my objectives and I just want to use and manipulate you to get what my way and my stuff done in my timing exactly as I want. I don't care about you. If that is the center of my being, then when you bump into me, what's going to come out? That's coming out of my mouth. I might do it in a polite way that kind of passes muster, but when that comes out of my mouth, that's because that's what's in the core of my being. That's coming out of me. So often we say, when we get caught off guard, we say something we shouldn't. We say, oh, I didn't mean to say that. Actually, you did mean to say that. That's the real you talking when you're caught off guard. Uh, C.S. Lewis, I don't, I'm quoting him again, but he, he says, imagine when you're going into a basement and you flip the lights on all of a sudden, the, the, you might see a cockroach scurry off into the corner or some gross little insect fly away. He says, those things were there all along. It's just if they got caught off guard, they didn't have time to hide. But if you make some noise before you open the basement door and you flip the light on, all the bugs are gone. Why? It's not because they were never there. It's because they had time to hide themselves. And so often what, we're, what we do when we're caught off guard tells us a lot about what's really going on inside the bottle. So here's what Jesus is telling us. 
If you want to change the way you talk, the answer is not a 10-step how-to program where you go, okay, I'm going to make a resolution. I'm not going to say these words. I'm not going to say these words. I'm only going to do this, 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 and this. Good luck if that's how you're thinking about it. You cannot jury-rig your mouth in that way. It's not going to actually have any fundamental change. It might have some common sense wisdom to it, but it's not going to fundamentally change the problem. How do, if you want to have life-giving water, grace of God pouring through you, coming out your mouth to bless other people, how do you get it? First, make the tree good, and then the fruit will be good. Make the tree bad, the fruit will be bad. You are known by your fruit. So Jesus is saying you need to work on the heart. What is deep down within is what needs to be worked on. And if you, listen, I heard a pastor say this in 2006, and uh, I think about it regularly to this day. I heard a pastor say, he was 60 years old at the time he said this. He said, he said I'm 60 years old. He looked down on a room of guys in their 20s, some of them in their 30s, some of them teenagers. A lot of these guys were looking to go into the ministry. And he said, listen, some of you, he said, are so young. He said, I'm 60. He said, so many of you in this room, he said, you've got 30, 40 years to become something in the Lord. In other words, to so walk with the Lord every morning and every evening of your life, to go before the Lord and to plead with the Lord. And, and, and do you do this? Do, we, do I do this? Do I go to the Lord and say, Lord, I need you right now to desperately intervene. My heart is starting to go the wrong direction. It's starting to be full of all kinds of filth and sin and evil. It's moving me away from you. God, I need you to purify my affections through your word, through prayer, through good books that are about God's word. God, work on my heart, change my heart, reorient my loves and my affections so that when I go downstairs tonight, I can bless my children. I can be loving to my wife rather than being irritable or whatever it might be. So deep down, we need a heart change that will lead to a transformation of our lives. And uh, I'm going to move toward a close here with this. If you don't think you, ha- you've, you've, you have much of an issue with your, with your words or your heart, I would, I would suggest you meditate on a familiar text. You can jot it down. You can go look at it. You probably know it. Isaiah chapter 6. And I'm just going to repeat part of it. Remember Isaiah, the year King Uzziah died, he'd been king for 50 plus years. Isaiah saw the Lord. Remember this? Seated in the temple, train of his robe filled the temple, doorposts shook, the angels, seraphim are crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, the whole earth is full of his glory. And at the, at the sound of their voices, the doorpost and the threshold shook and the whole temple, the whole house was filled with smoke. And Isaiah, who is the prophet who wrote one of the greatest books in the entire Bible, the, the book of Isaiah, one of the most astonishing books of prophecy in the whole of God's word. Isaiah, who was certainly one of the most righteous and godly men alive in his generation. I just don't question. I'm sure if, if you were to look at his generation, he must have been at the, top of the, at the top of the pile. When Isaiah sees God in his absolute holiness in front of him, you know the first thing Isaiah, the prophet, what does a prophet do? He speaks God's word, right? The first thing Isaiah says when he sees God in his holiness is he doesn't say, man, God, we, you and I are very close to each other in our level of holiness, but it's those people out there that really need to hear it from me. Let's go tell them something. That's not what Isaiah says. Isaiah collapses and says, woe is not the Ninevites, not Israel, not the Philistines. Woe is me. I am undone. I'm ruined. I'm coming apart at the seams. And what does he point to first? He points to his mouth. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. He thinks he's going to die because of the words that have come out of his mouth that tell him something about a heart that's within, his, within himself that he knows he needs rescue from. And what happens? 
Uh, the Lord sends the angel, takes tongs, then uh, take, takes the coal burning from the altar with tongs, too hot for the angel to touch. The angel takes that over in the vision and pushes it up against Isaiah's lips, the very place where he needed the words and the heart to change. And you can almost hear, R.C. Sproul said, you can almost hear the sizzling of his lips. Imagine the pain of that, even in the visionary sense of what's happening. There's a pain on his lips, and what happens? The Lord says, your guilt has been taken away. Your sin is atoned for. Who will go and speak for me? And Isaiah says, here am I, send me. Can the Lord redeem the filthiest lips in the world? Yes, the Lord can redeem us no matter how we have sinned with our mouths, no matter what it reveals about the evil in our heart. When you see God in, your, in His holiness, none of us feels like we're doing really great. We're going to collapse before Him. We're going to call out for mercy. The Lord forgives by His grace. He cleanses us, and He says, okay, now I'm empowering you to go use those same lips to honor me. I'm going to use the, those same word, those, that same mouth to, to go out and to speak truth about me to those who need to hear it. So no matter how far we've fallen, the Lord can still use us. We must be humble. We must come before Him, and we must ask for His grace. Let's bow our heads together. I'm going to give you just a moment to pray quietly, and then I'll pray for us, and we will sing. Just take a moment to talk to the Lord. Heavenly Father, if you were to take any of us in this room and you were to put us before your judgment and there was no grace and no forgiveness and no gospel, and you were to judge us by our words, how far short would we fall of your standard? There's not one day of our lives that we would, we would pass your standard of perfect speech. By our words, every single one of us would ultimately be condemned. But we know because of the gospel that we have the perfect speech of your son credited to us. And all of the words that we have spoken sinfully or with a sinful attitude have been credited to your son and he buried them in the grave and he rose victorious over them. He was buried for our sins and raised for our justification. And God, by simple faith, we cling to the finished work of Jesus because we've got nothing else to cling to. And we know that we are righteous in Christ by grace through faith alone. And God, we would ask that there would be a real transformation that would come increasingly in our lives, that we would want to impart grace to others with our words, that we would not speak corrupting words, vicious words, vengeful words, even if they're polite in a certain sense. I pray, God, that we would not use our words to manipulate people to do what we selfishly want. That we would not try to jab back with our words, with our careful choice of how we speak. God, I pray instead that we would overlook an offense as you've overlooked countless offenses of ours. I pray that we would speak with holy lips, that we would speak truth in love, that we would speak gracious words that build up those who are around us and that others would be encouraged by us and that people would come to know Jesus through us and that we would speak most of all about you and your word and your son and your spirit and your gospel, and that we would encourage people and point them to Christ through uh, the message of, of the good news of Jesus. So God, help us. God, we, we need help in this area. We all fall short. I pray you'd pour out your grace on us, strengthen us, and help us to bless others well with the words that you enable us to speak. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.